like all of this uh, discussion we've had over the last uh, month or so on This Is Us series, it will be probably beneficial for you to lean in. Uh, These things aren't coming from a particular passage exegeted. They're from a devotional mindset of what the scriptures in total say, at least as we we can say, to one particular subject in a half an hour time slot. So I've got a lot of passages I'll set up for you. And uh, if you try to chase me, you'll never come back. So um, just the screen will have the the scripture up there for you. I'd like you to just listen. Uh, This is a confession. I can't recall a sermon series ever that we've done, we've got more responses than this last one on This Is Us. Um, we've prayed uh, beforehand, we've asked, you know, God, what, what, what should we do? And the redemption kind of model, it, periodically throughout the year, every congregation gets a space to speak to its people. And uh, as we were dialoguing, Tyler and Paul and I, about what are we hearing in our church, what came clear to us is that people, people are hurting. And for all different reasons and different kinds of ways, and we felt like, well, why don't we talk about the hurt and be more specific in that way? And so in in our attempt to do that, what we've heard from you is like, I needed somebody to say that. Somebody needed to say something about my disappointment. I needed to hear that I wasn't the only one who feels like the heavens are silent when I pray. I needed to know that depression and anxiety isn't exclusively just my thing. And that I have tried to manage it by going underground with it and keeping it to myself, but clearly there's more, more people involved in that. And so at a minimum, we wanted you to know that you're not the first, you are not alone, and you're not lost in all these things. They don't, they don't speak to you um, in reality what, what they are. They lie to you, and they divide us. In the veil that exists between God and heaven and here on earth, there is this common experience to man it's a struggle for faith in the midst of our humanness and the midst of our pain and suffering and sin, right? There's just this distance. God, you, you've said these things and, and I read this wonderful good news and, and I hear about joy and, and then I'm feeling me and I, I, I know my story and, and there's, a, there's a disconnect here. And sometimes I think it's just healthy to drag those things out into the light, <laughs> like our experiences. And, and I think there's even some healing in just calling them out for what they are and to, to say that they're, a common experience. I do have to confess, I don't think we've even brushed the surface, though. I'm not pretending to think that for three weeks or whatever that we have unmined all of these troubles that we have. I think there's many more. And nor do I think that we know everything about these things or, or in the varieties of ways they affect us. Um, we uh, don't want to convince you somehow that we have quick and easy answers to these things. The nuance of pain and suffering is pretty pretty deep. I mean, there's, there's so much to it. So we don't want to give you the impression that, hey, be happy now. You've got a couple, you got three weeks on depression, disappointment, and uh, silence. Everybody should be okay. But I do feel like it would be negligent of us beyond just pointing to our experiences and say it's common to the story of sin and sinners in a world. Um, there would be negligence if we didn't say, is there any way to find rest? Anywhere I can go? Like if these are my stories and these are my experiences, what, what can I do with it? Last week, Paul talked about prayer. And again, this is just a snapshot of a few things, of, of places to find rest. And specifically, I, I think the way I consider these subjects that we're talking about is things that atrophy in trouble. When you're depressed and dark, when, when the accuser is lying, when, when God seems silent, um, there are things that tend to shrink. 
my prayer life starts to get weak need, and I kind of throw up my hands and fatalistically say, you know, well, I guess God doesn't do those things. Not for me. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's this. And so we tend to shrink down. Um, this week, I want to bring another part of this aspect to this. And, and I think this truth kind of covers all of our experiences. It is that trouble really does cause retreat. Don't want it to, but it does. This kind of trouble that we're talking about causes people to retreat from life. I mean, people choose to numb themselves because of difficulties. You might know some. It might be even you. People retreat from other people. They're isolated and alone. I have friends who spend most of their time in dark places alone by themselves because the only way they feel like they can manage it is to not tell anybody and to keep it to themselves. Some people retreat from joy because they refuse to be comforted and some people um, retreat from emotions. This is classically an older generational thing like if I just act like everything's okay. Just shut down, you know, just be numb to that. And, and we have lots of responses, but the general idea is we, re, we retreat in some things. It causes a retreat from those. And, and what I want to talk to you about today is another version of retreat. It's a retreat from worship. And that might sound weird to you, and I want you to hang in here, but I, I do think this is a classic way people respond to suffering. Let me give you the big idea where we're going today before I tell you, uh, kind of tease up the why. You need worship, church. Every single last one of you need worship, and you were all made by God to worship. That is just the truth. Worship is God's gift to us, his bride, for everything that is in opposition to us. Everything that we've talked about, God is saying, here's something that you can fight with. Worship, but what happens to us is, man, the last thing I want to do is sing in trouble. Singing's for happy people, but I would want you to know that the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, I uh, used to lead worship. If you're new in the last five years, you wouldn't know that, but 25 years I led worship here in different places and contexts, and I feel like I've done 100 sermons on what worship is, why worship is. Um, I, I looked through some of that stuff, and, and uh, I was reminded of things that we've said in the past, um, I could point to examples of worship. I gotta, there's a, the story of David just moves me to, to no end. David, who's ushering the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, gets so carried away with God, he strips down to his underwear and he dances for 10 miles. That's significant worship. So much so that his wife accuses him of being an undignified kind of king. And I would just suggest the church could use a whole bunch more of undignified crazy worshipers. That would be my suggestion. Well, it's interesting to me, um, there seems to be a schizophrenic mind with the church. We speak of amazing things when we talk about God's grace to sinners, don't we? Don't we? Like, if you just isolate this discussion of grace to your story, all the ways you have screwed things up, and I said to you, hey, you can have freedom, and you can have peace with God and peace with yourself, you can have it in the gospel. You would think that would result in crazy people expressing their affections for God. But what happens is if people came in here, they would look at your face and go, what are you talking about? Your face does not communicate that message. There's something that happens to maybe the American church. I was watching a video just this week of the underground church in China. These people are not taught worship like we're taught. They can't help themselves. It's radical what they do. There's another, I think, logjam in the American church's version of worship, and it might be that we have just learned bad habits, but nevertheless, it's true. I, I have in the past talked about the current culture of worship. 
And I've talked about the feeling of some who think that singing is just the preliminaries to the real thing. The reason why we come is because of duty and habitual things. We do that and the word. Let's get to the word. Now, I love the word, okay? But singing and worship is not the doesn't matters to the grand scope of what God is doing and giving to the church. Um, this is no judgment. Please don't feel it like a judgment. I'm just going to say it because we're friends, right? It's the explanation why people are okay with coming late and leaving early when it comes to worship. They have put it in a classification of it just doesn't matter. The real thing is this, whatever that might be for you, and that is subjective. I've had conversations with grown men, grown men who think worship is silly and unmasculine. You know, paint whatever picture you have of the American version of tough guy, and they think, well, that's, what you know, that's why I can't worship. Men don't do that. Men don't sing. Men can't get radical. David, man after God's own heart, a warrior, king, he could be silly before the Lord in worship, but not me. I'm a man, and men don't do that. I've heard men tell me those things, and I get it. I do. And I, uh, I tell you all the time, and I hope you don't just blow me off, but I really do care about you. But I scratched my head all day Thursday going, I don't know how to have them care about this. I mean, in the, in the way we laid out this series, I was left with worship. And then now I'm studying, and I'm going, I don't know if anybody's going to care like, I really don't know. I don't know if there's so much water under the bridge, so much habit, so much culture in the story that if I push on a version of worship that you have no concept of, you go, well, that just doesn't apply. Last week was good. doesn't matter this week. So I'm not certain that you will care when it's all said and done, but I want to try. Because what I think I have for you today is a gift. And it's not for me. It's a gift from God. Worship is a gift from God. A gift of song and praise. There is probably not a person in this room who when I say that you were made in the image of a God, that you would say, well, I, I know that. Created in the image of God. That's what Genesis chapter one tells me. And being created in the image of God has a lot of different variations, or little parts and pieces, aspects to it, prisms of it. Uh, one aspect is that we have this reason mind, this choosing mind. We have this mentality that was created by God to create and do things. We have a moral mind. We are created in righteousness, even though the fall screwed that up. We all still walk around with a compass. That's why criminals run and hide. They know they've done something wrong. There is some kind of version of God still in the heart of man, created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God socially. God is a triune God. He's fellowship with one another. We are created and had a relationship with him in the beginning. He said it wasn't good for man to be alone. He gave him a wife, blah, blah, blah. Relationship is what we have. We are created in the image of God. And I'll bet you knew that. But there's another part of who God is that we are to be like in his image, and I'll bet you didn't know this, and that is that God is a singing God. I'm gonna take you to passage, you don't have to turn there, but it's a passage I guarantee you is the crispy part of your Bible, you've never seen this one. Zephaniah chapter three. This is the Lord himself speaking. The Lord your God is in your midst. Listen. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. <laughs> Did you hear that, church? Our God sings loud. He sings loud. God is so happy in the love and the salvation he brings to his people. He cannot help himself but to sing over that. You rocked right there. You read that. And you go, I, did, I never thought of God as a singing God. And let me just put it in context of why he sings, okay? 
if, if you were to look at all the grand expressions of God's power that he's ever revealed to us, you might look at creation and go, that's pretty significant. He spoke into the darkness and said, let there be, and everything you know in the entire universe that you can know, he spoke it into being, and he didn't sing over creation. He just said it was good. He could have made a thousand more, but when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the wonderful, beautiful depiction of love, sacrificial love, grace to those who don't deserve it, he sings. He sings over us, church. He sings over you. And I suppose if God sings over us because of his great love and grace to us, then his image bearers should be the greatest singers on the planet. Would you not agree? Okay. Now maybe if we're in the discussion of our troubles, maybe that whole concept of worship seems disconnected from people who struggle with darkness, depression, disappointment, silence, all those kinds of things, and I understand it, but I have to, before I go on, at least try to destroy the idea that many of us come in here with about worship, that it's a man-made thing, that it's silly, it's unmasculine, it's foolish, it's unnecessary, and it's preliminary. It is not. This is what we sing about. Our God sings over salvation. We should too. Does that make sense? All right, maybe I said that and you go, I, I know that, Tim, move on. And I'm glad you know that. But for you, the issue isn't that we don't know that we're supposed to be a worshiping people. It's that we're dealing with broken hearts and broken hearts can't sing. And therein lies the challenge. I'm talking about singing, song, worship, reflecting the nature of God. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Nothing in my heart wants to do that. You have no idea what my story is. And I, I understand. And by the way, so does God. And let me just say this. Worship isn't the expression of a people who have a perfect life. That's not what worship is. It's not the, it is not the voice or the song of those who have everything go their way. That's not what it is. And it's not, it's not the actions of, of people who fake it, like coming in here and just pretending, right? We don't pretend. Um, trying hard to forget our circumstances. Worship happens to be a place to bring our circumstances. That's what worship is, an honest heart, an honest heart who knows that God is, God can, God will, God finished. You know the story, and so you sing to the story in spite of your suffering. We don't fake it, we bring it. That's what the scripture says, all the mess, all the hurt, all the confusion, all the isolation, that's what we bring our Father when we sing. And by the way, you know this, and we've said it already, God can handle it. He already knows. There's nothing that you're going through, nothing that you will go through that he isn't completely more familiar with than you are. So we bring it. So let me tell you why, in the brief time we have left, why we worship. First thing, we worship because it's the best use of our time. We just finished the book of Ephesians, so this should be ringing in your head. You should remember this. Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul said it this way. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of, your, of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but that, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let me ask you a very simple question. When do you ever really know what it is you're supposed to be doing? I mean, maybe you never go that far and say, should I be doing this? Maybe we never even ask those questions. But when do you ever really know? 
Are you ever really sure you're making the best of your time? Paul said in this passage, the days are evil. Can I get an amen? You don't need any more proof that the days are evil than just, just look at the news. The days are bad as they have been in my, in my life. But let me just tell you this. Paul says very clearly, the only stated thing to do to make the best use of our time in days that are evil, and you would not have written this, he says, is to worship and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Best of use of your time. And you know why that sounds totally ridiculous and absurd? Because most of us have spent our entire life doing other things. Days are evil, what do I do? Run, hide, buy, sell, worry, stress, drugs, drinking. What do I do? All I've ever done is everything but worship <laughs> to manage the days are evil. Paul says, here, the days are evil. Just, just do this. Sing to the Lord. I, I wouldn't have written that verse. <laughs> but it's there. Let me give you a second thing to consider. We worship because it pushes back on the lies. That's why we worship. You don't have to answer this, but how many times is your mind filled with questions and doubts with no answers? Some of the people I love the dearest have days like that, haunted with questions, with a silence after the question. How many times is your mind filled with self-accusations and you feel like you've got no defense, like you can't put up a resistance to it at all, just accusatory, accusatory, accusatory? How many times is your mind filled with darkness and, and you don't have any relief? Sometimes we are our own worst enemy and we refuse, we refuse to accept God's grace for our failures. In that condition, church, what do you need? Not complicated. You need the truth to drive out the lies. Because the accusations aren't real and they're not true. So you need a better word, right? You need a better word. What we need is for God's truth to win the fight with our darkness. That's what we need. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to remind you again of something that he said in Colossians 3. He suggests two absolutely essential parts of the word dwelling in the church deep enough to overcome, okay? And we do those two things every Sunday. You know what they are? Study the word of God and worship. That's what he says in Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Check. <laughs> Second part, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs with thankful hearts to God. That's what he says. Um, let me try to clarify even more. I like to think of worship as the complementary flip side to preaching. I love preaching. Um, preaching is the hostile takeover of the heart. It is, it is a God-ordained, Holy Spirit-filled, mysterious thing. He just does what he does. It's so amazing to me that you can get hundreds or thousands of people in the same space and the Spirit can give an individual message to everybody. Preaching is wonderful, okay? But worship is the complementary flip side to preaching. If preaching is simply this, and this is our hope every week, we engage the mind to get to your affections. That's what preaching is. This is what God said, church, do you believe it? And somewhere your mind's engaging with the truth of his love as an affections for you that's set in time and eternity and his faithfulness, you go, oh, wow, I move to what? So what? Obey, love, right? Confess. All these things are the side effect to belief that comes through preaching. Preaching affects the mind, then affects the affections, and therefore that explains why you do different things from then on. Worship is the opposite side of that. Worship moves the affections to get to the mind. In other words, with song, our affections are moved to the point of belief. 
when I was a, a young believer, I mean, brand new believer, maybe, maybe months old, okay, in Christ, I had a job driving a delivery truck, and I delivered tile and carpet and flooring in Chicago. And uh, they had this thing in the truck, amazing, uh, amazing piece of technology called an eight-track tape player, okay? <laughs> and as soon as I got saved, I, I thought, I, I, want, I want something. And so I went down to the Butte Music Store, and I bought, and some of you will know what this is, I bought eight tracks of the Imperials. Can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> And Keith Green and Larry Norman and, and, uh, and Randy Stonehill and all these guys. And I spent 12 hours a day singing my head off in this van in Chicago. I'm certain they thought I was nuts and crazy. I was so moved. I'd cry my way around the city because I was discovering the gospel truth in song. It's all I had. I wasn't reading my Bible. I was listening to music. And it moved me. And it taught me those things. Well, when doubts and despair begin... Here's the reality. We can sing ourselves back from the edge of unbelief because truth as a song wins the mind to believe. That's just how it happens. You can be singing something, maybe even something you see as just a rote statement, but somehow God and the way he shapes man takes those truths with affections and moves our hearts with melody and it, it gets in. It makes a point to our life. Does, does that make sense? Singing, according to Paul, stands alongside preaching as one of the two ways God has ordained for his word to get into our hearts and make a difference. You will understand it with both, Colossians 3. Let me give you another reason why we sing or why we worship. We worship because it not only pushes back on the lies, it pushes back on the liar. We've talked about this recently, but let me just say it again. The accuser, Satan, the liar is the number one reason why there's an exhausted heart in the church. The number one reason why you're worn out. Now, does your sin contribute? Absolutely. But who, who convinced you that your sin was worth a try in the first place? The liar. He's responsible for your darkness. So, we have a serious opposition. We, we learned this in Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood but against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In 1 Peter, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. You have an adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to eat. This, this is serious business. There is spiritual opposition to, to our lives. I don't have to remind you, I'm certain you know this, but Satan's number one task is to get us to question God and his word. That's what he did in the garden. Did God really say? Would God really do? And isn't that how he attacks us constantly? Constantly suggesting that God's not doing the right thing? When questions flood our minds, what do you think the adversary will do with that? Does God really love you? Does God hear you? Could, could God forgive that? It can just be a thought. It can be a fleeting thought, but there it is. It comes. He would suggest that maybe this isn't real, that you won't survive the pain, that God might not be good. You have no idea. Listen very carefully. You have no idea, church, what singing does to the accuser. I read um, this week one writer say that the enemies of God are thrown into confusion by the singing of God's people. We have some examples. 
this again would maybe a story you, you don't remember, but in, in 2 Chronicles 20, there's a story of the fourth king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. Good man, loved God. But, but he wasn't prepared for war. And the text tells us that everybody, everybody was coming after him. At that point in time, the Ammonites, the Meonites, the Moabites were all coming after Judah to destroy him. And he didn't know what to do. And so he prayed. He said, God, uh, you, you, you're God. We can't fix this. <laughs> we can't defend ourselves and we can't sort any of this out. What do you want us to do? And so here's what they did. Let me just read this to you. And they rose early in the morning and went out of the wilderness to Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. That's a true story. But it's also an illustration that singing of God's people confuses the accuser. You know what to do with that. You're, you're over-confessing his accusations. You're doing it in concert with the rest of the church, everyone fighting for the one true gospel, and it throws him into confusion. He loves isolation, which we'll get to next week. He can get you separated, and on your own, you're, you're in trouble. But the voice of the church, he doesn't know what to do with that. You have no idea what it does to the enemy. So when the heart is broken, when the accuser says that God can't be trusted, sing him away. When darkness and depression overwhelm you and the accuser says, hey, you know what? God's probably left you. He's found someone more durable than you are. Sing him away. Push him away with song and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what the scriptures imply to us. Let me give you another reason why we sing and why we worship. We worship because it encourages those who can't. There's a part we play, and you know this, in each other's lives. It is the place where we say we are a brother's keeper. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. We confess our sins to one another. We build one another up. That's what the scriptures tell us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, Colossians says. The example is pretty clear. If I said to you, you got, a, you got a friend who's in trouble, like they're really struggling with darkness, and it would make total sense, and you probably already do this. You'd show up at Starbucks, you'd sit across the table with a cup of coffee, and you'd start talking, and you'd listen. And you'd talk, and you'd listen, and you would start sharing truth. You'd remind your brother of the things that are always true and better truth than all the lies he's believing, right? You would encourage him, even in his failures, that he hasn't outfilled God's love. You would push and push and push. That's brothers. Brothers do that. Sisters do that with one another. It makes total sense. Well, it's the same thing for those who can't sing. We sing for them. It's, it's like there are people every Sunday, and I know this, every Sunday there are people in here whose hearts are so worn out, they can't open their mouth. And I know you're going, I like that song. I really dig that part. I love how it sounds. It ain't about that. You're reminding yourself of the truth when you feel like it. You're reminding yourself of the truth when you don't, and you're singing for everyone else who has no voice. They can't get there. They're under the weight of the worst of the parts of, of their life, and they, you don't know. 
because we're good at coping. We're good at hiding. We just go underground with it all. And so little do you know that we are their faith in their moment of darkness. We are confessing together a confession they can't verbalize. Do you understand? We are our brother's helper in that way. Don't ever forget you're not alone. So let me give you one last thought. We worship because it's God's plan for our joy. You cannot pick up this Bible, I, I don't think, because I, I didn't exhaust it this week, but I, uh, I couldn't find a place where the connection between joy and singing wasn't there. Joy and worship, or joy and song and singing are always connected everywhere you go in the scriptures. It's undeniable. It's hard to mention one without the other. Sometimes, and this is the easiest part, we sing because we have joy, right? That's the easy part. I'm happy, I sing. And sometimes I sing to get joy, biblically. In, in the second week of our series, This Is Us, I talked about when you feel like the heavens are closed to you and God is silent. And I used three illustrations, uh, Job, Habakkuk, and David, remember? Uh, of men who had moments where they wondered, where, God, where are you? Where did you go? In Job, it was in the midst of his suffering. God allowed him to be sifted, and he lost everything. He lost his, his family, he lost his possessions, he lost his future. Now, this is even before he lost his health. But the text tells us that he was asking God, why do you hide your face from me? Felt like that. Felt like everything was going great, God, and you just disappeared off the planet. Habakkuk, he was wrestling with this culture, this God-denying culture, and a people that were rebellious, and he was crying for help over and over again. He said, how long, God, how long should I cry for help and ask for your deliverance and you not listen to me? David uh, was promised by God to be king, and so he prayed, how long, God, till you keep your word? Because nothing seems to work out like I'm hoping. Well, listen, every one of those illustrations of men who experienced darkness with God, every one of them responded with worship. In, in Job chapter 1, it says, in the midst of Job's suffering, he rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Somehow, in Job's mind, all's gone. I don't get what's going on, but I know he's good, and he worshipped. Habakkuk and David wrote songs. This is Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in my God, the God of my salvation. God, the, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's, and he makes me tread on high places. Now, here's how he finishes. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Hey, go and, go and publish this song. David, in the long run could write a song, and it starts with this in, in Psalm chapter 18. To the choir master, David's song sounds like this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is after all these questions about God, why are you so quiet? Why won't you answer? Why won't you deliver? These men are now worshiping, all right? Let me just suggest to you, you have no idea the gift of worship. There was a, an article someone sent me this week. I'd like to finish with this. Um, it says, I realize more and more in my life that the greatest temptation we face as believers is to think that prayer doesn't matter and that our song doesn't matter. 
But as St. Augustine says, singing is like praying twice. Singing is powerful because it involves the will and the intellect while simultaneously engaging our hearts. Singing gives testimony without the need for dramatic speech. The same God who makes sweeping changes in the lives of saints and sinners makes subtle and lasting changes in each and every one of us. And singing becomes such a simple yet powerful testimony to his work. Singing gives people permission to join in the song. And in that song is a real sense of belonging and hope. I don't know where you are on stuff like this. You could be the classic old dude that thinks it's not tough enough for you to sing. It could be that you look through everything through a very subjective personal lens like it's about flavor of the month. If they, if they do what I want, then I'm more engaged. I'm suggesting to you, whatever hindrance to your worship is, it might be the second greatest tool Satan uses to keep you in the dark. If what he does to start it is accuse you with lies that aren't true, maybe if we're not accessing praise and songs and spiritual hymns to the Lord, maybe we stay there longer than we should. Right? Let's pray together. Father God, for our broken hearts, um, we cry to you knowing you already know how we feel and what we're dealing with. But we also know that we have tendencies to uh, retreat in difficult days. And sometimes we retreat, many times we retreat from things that we need the most, like prayer and now worship. God, somehow every illustration we have in scriptures of those whose hearts have been broken, who've been downcast at one time or another, Lord, you have given them a song to sing, some remembrance of who you really are in spite of our troubles. So for those of us who've, who've decided to check out from time to time, God, would you give us a song? Remind us to sing our hearts back into belief off the edge of unbelief. For those in the room who can't sing because it's fresh for them, I pray they hear the voice of the church, the confession, the, the belief of the family of God, and they're encouraged by the gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.